Smarties, we are really excited to share this episode. At the end of 2019, we were interviewed by Dr. Jeremy Sharp on his podcast, The Testing Psychologist. This was a wide-ranging conversation where we share things from our backgrounds that we haven't yet shared in our podcast, talk about educational therapy, intervention, why we love, what we do, and of course, executive functioning. Dr. Jeremy Sharp is the host of the Testing Psychologist podcast. He covers everything you need to know to start or grow psychological assessment services in your private practice. He talks about finances, marketing, time management, self-care, technology, and life as a mental health practitioner. Jeremy chats with successful clinicians who share their experiences in testing and private practice to give his audience straightforward ideas for building thriving assessment services. Dr. Jeremy Sharp is a licensed psychologist specializing in psychological and neuropsychological testing. Over the past seven years, he has grown the Colorado Center for Assessment and Counseling from a solo practice to a multi-clinician clinic with over a thousand percent revenue increase. You can learn more about him at thetestingpsychologist.com and we'll link that in the show notes as well. We hope you enjoy this interview. Have a great week. Have a great week. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Jeremy Sharp, and this is the Testing Psychologist Podcast, the podcast where we talk all about the business and practice of psychological and neuropsychological assessment. Welcome back. Hey, today's episode is pretty awesome. I had a great time talking with Rachel Cap and Steph Pitts. So Rachel and Steph are the co-hosts of the Learn Smarter podcast. It's called Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. And it's really aimed at educating, encouraging, and expanding understanding for parents of students with different learning profiles through growing awareness of educational therapy, individual strategies, community support, coaching, and educational content. They cover a lot of material in their podcast. Uh, I will definitely link to that in the show notes, and you should definitely check it out. It's a good one. But I talk with Rachel and Steph today all about kind of basics of educational therapy, what it is, what the training involves, and how to find a good educational therapist. And then we transition about halfway through to really talk about executive functioning as an area of intervention. So they talk all about their approach to executive functioning and teaching executive functioning skills. So there's a lot of content in this episode to dive into. I think you'll enjoy it. A little more about the two of them. Steph and Rachel bonded and met in educational therapy graduate school, and they both took the leap to quit their jobs around the same time and start private educational therapy practices. Uh, They decided to start the podcast because they were having these conversations anyway and decided to share all of their knowledge and resources via the podcast. And it's really taken off. There's almost 80 episodes and the content, like I said, is fantastic. Rachel, in particular, grew up in L.A., studied abroad in Rome, taught preschool for seven years, and then went to grad school and found educational therapy, and really helps to fulfill her kind of obsession with helping struggling learners thrive. She talks about that on the podcast a bit. Steph uh, is a lover of board games, which we definitely get into, and kind of a tech guru. She also grew up in L.A., Uh, also went to graduate school after teaching elementary school, and she 
honed her executive functioning skills early with a family of seven kids. So she moved on to educational therapy and again has a private practice in the LA area. I'll link to both of their practices in the show notes, but in the meantime, I invite you to enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Rachel Cap and Steph Pitts. Hey, welcome back to the Testing Psychologist Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in again. I am here with Rachel Cap and Steph Pitts, like you heard in the intro. Um, Rachel and Steph have been working together for quite a while, and I'm excited to talk with them. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You know, I'm struck just right off by how small the podcasting world is. You know, y'all kind of reached out and and we had a little chat and immediately found a connection with Melissa Hall and Amber Holly, mm-hmm. you know, in the My Biz Bestie thing. Uh-huh. And just, it's always amazing how we are all very closely connected, even if we might not know it. So it's a great, make new connections. yeah, it's a great community to be a part of. We like podcasters. Yeah, it's fun. Okay. Yeah. Sure, sure. And I was also saying this is one of the rare times when my guests have amazing microphones uh, like myself, so our audio should be pretty good this time. Yay. You're welcome, audience. <laughs> right, right. So thanks a lot for coming. I'm really excited to talk with y'all all about educational therapy and hoping to really dive in into executive functioning interventions for kids. I think that's super important. Great. So just to lead off a little bit, um, I think like I mentioned in past episodes, I'm I'm cutting down the introductions, but I do want to know why this work is important to you and why are you doing this now? Steph, you want me to go first? Yeah, I do. So this is Rachel speaking. We have found that when there's two female voices, it's good to differentiate. So I'm Rachel. I was attracted to this work because I used to be a preschool teacher and I was very interested in how my little four and a half year olds were consuming information and how knowledge was seeping into their brains. And also I would see at four and a half when the kind of traditional things that we were doing in the classroom, which were very visual and auditory and kinesthetic for these kids wouldn't work. And we had to get creative about how to teach them stories or whatever curriculum we were working on in that particular moment. That's how I found educational therapy. And I love getting to help learners have access to information that might be difficult for them based off their learning profile. Nice. And this is Stephanie. I found educational therapy because I was a teacher and then I raised seven children, somebody else's seven children. And I was basically doing ed therapy for those kids without realizing what it was and helping them access doing their homework and all the things that were required of them in school. So I went back to school to learn even more where Rachel and I met. And it's really about a lot of taking aim and helping them become the best learners they can be. And just seeing those aha moments with them or their shoulders just relax after they leave my office is really rewarding. Yeah. What an amazing feeling I could imagine that being just seeing the light come on, like they get it. Yes. It's really powerful for kids, especially. It's almost kind of like a high, honestly. I bet. 
So y'all gig is educational therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that term. Uh, I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know that that term is sanctioned or official in every state in the nation. So I'm really curious, what is educational therapy and is it an independent licensure or, or what? Good question. And we'll preface this by saying this is our answer to it. We're not yes. speaking on behalf of anybody else. Yes. So Steph, how would you define educational therapy? Because we define it slightly differently, but it's the same practice. Yeah. So I like to say I teach students to learn how to learn and who they are as learners. And Rachel's version is? My job is to help learners become independent and successful and autonomous in the classroom and in life. So educational therapy focuses on skills that need to be remediated. It's one of the things that makes it different from tutoring in that we're not that interested in content, but we will use the content to help learners access information through the strategies that we're trying to teach. Yeah. So the content becomes the vehicle. Mm -hmm. and teaching the strategies and then helping them choose and know which strategies work for them and which ones to implement when and how. I see. So is it fair, and this might be an oversimplification, to say that tutors are working primarily with the academic subject material like reading, writing, math skills, whereas y'all are teaching the more global underlying skills that might um, allow them to, to access those academic materials. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, definitely. And I think I wanted to add educational therapy in general isn't known throughout the country as it is in California. One of the reasons is it was born in California. And the other reason is it's only been around for 40 years. So it's really relatively new. We have a governing board that is not state-specific. It's countrywide. So you'll find educational therapy in some big cities, Dallas, Chicago, New York, places like that. Oh, yeah, San Francisco. Well, California, yeah. Mm -hmm. And other than that, there's educational therapists around, and they're sprinkled here and there. And as the profession becomes more well-known, it's gaining traction, but it's not something that people know about. So we often have to tell people what it is exactly we do because people have never heard of it. And in terms of the licensure question, we can speak for California where we don't have state licensure, which means educational therapy is private pay here. Can't speak to other states just because we live in LA. So that's what we know. But in terms of the governing board that we have, that's the board through which we kind of get ordained as certified. So it's a self-governed community of educational therapists. I see. Is there a similar professional certification that we might compare it to? Would this be like someone getting certified in EMDR or... Or is it more intensive than that? I'm I'm just curious about that. It's an interesting question because, because EMDR is under the licensure that somebody would already have, right? Sure. Yeah. I think for the most part, only licensed folks can be EMDR certified. Right. So I don't know if it's an exact comparison. I'm not even sure of another field that 
So what I, do you think? I was going to say on the East Coast, there's a lot of academic coaches and life coaches. You can be certified by the International Coaching Federation, but people don't know that you can be licensed as a life coach or an academic coach. So I want to say it's more similar to that because mm-hmm. anybody could call themselves an ed therapist, honestly. Not that we condone that because we've gone through a lot of training, but technically speaking, because there's no licensure, it's one of those things where we've seen other people in similar fields that have taken on and are doing educational therapy simultaneously. There are therapists that are actually also educational therapists. Speech pathologists as well. And so I think it's important while we're talking about not everybody has the same certification and background in education, but that they can call themselves an ed therapist to kind of explain to people how they can find out kind of the background of the educational therapist. If you're informed going into it, you can know. Mm -hmm. One of the really easy ways is to search for educational therapists in your area through our governing board, which is the Association of Educational Therapy, or it might be educational therapists. I'm not sure. Association of Educational Therapists. So you can Google that and there's a search function and you can search by zip code or you can search by name of somebody who's calling themselves that. Now I will say not everybody who is an educational therapist is a part of the association, but that's absolutely a conversation that you can have with the individual professional if you are looking for someone and they're not listed on the website. They might have a reason why. So it's kind of up to the individual to kind of do that research. I gotcha. So what should someone look for in an educational therapist? Ideally, if they're trying to find someone, is is there a specific certification or specific training path that, that might jump out? So we are certified. Well, I did a postmaster certificate in educational therapy, and there's several schools that do that around the country. And also, there are different levels within the association, signifying if you're a student member, if you're what's called an associate level, and a professional level, or board certified. So if there's somebody who says they're an educational therapist, or you're finding them on the Association of Educational Therapists website, for instance, you will see where they are in their journey. And otherwise, I would say people who have credentials in special education or just are rock star educators, is like I like to call them, mm-hmm. those are the people that are going to be more in tune with what an educational therapist does rather than doing tutoring and calling it educational therapy so they can just charge more. I see. That's a good distinction. Yeah. I think we have some examples of that in our field as well. People masquerading as one thing or another. I am sure. Yes. Okay. Good to know. I just wanted to set the stage. So I would imagine folks will go out after the podcast at some point and try to find an educational therapist. So just knowing what we might look for. And like I said, I don't know of educational therapists here in Colorado. Uh, It's just not a a popular certification or modality. I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are, but I wouldn't even know what to look for. So now... You said this is a post-master's certification. Are there degrees in educational therapy or uh, formal educational tracks with that? So Steph and I kind of took a different path. We had classes that overlapped, which is how we met. Steph already had her master's when she entered into the certification program. I did not. 
and I wanted my master's. So we took a lot of the same classes, which allowed us to call ourselves educational therapists. And then I went on for a further year to get my master's. And the whole time I was there, I thought I was getting my master's in ed therapy. Come to find out when I got my, my diploma, I got a master's in special education with a concentration in educational therapy. So <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. Yeah. So there are postgraduate programs that you can participate in. We both went to CSUN, which is California State University, Northridge. And the kind of great thing about that program, which our ed therapy program actually started at UCLA and then went to CSUN. But the great thing about how the program was designed, it was actually designed kind of at the same time as the association was setting up their requirements for what classes people needed to have in order to certify as an ed therapist. So by going through that particular program, it was a very easy transition. Yeah. Into it's a, like fast tracked. Yeah. But there yeah, are other programs. Yeah. There. I, I just don't know that much about you, that. People can also, if you're interested, people can also take the classes and degrees that they have and apply to the Association of Educational Therapists and find out if they're missing any important classes and then can actually get certified independently. So it doesn't right. have to be through a program, but it was all encompassing the program that we did. So, I mean, it was two years worth of classes. So on top of a master's for me. So there's multiple ways, but the association is trying to set a standard for what background and information you need in order to be successful at therapist. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. Thanks for diving into that. I know we're getting in the weeds a little bit, but yeah. the educational stuff is important and just knowing, you know, all the work that y'all have put in to be where you are. Right. Yeah. And I am sure for your listeners who are doing testing and whatnot, they want to make sure that they're referring to the right people. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, you know, your reputation too. I get it. That's also important. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'd love to switch gears and really start talking about who benefits from educational therapy and what kind of kids or folks you're working with. So what does that look like? So... We have slightly different specialties, but I will also, I'll speak for staff that we aren't in practice together, but our practices are very similar. And um, we both have teams that work under us as well. We both have group practices. We at CAP Educational Therapy Group, which is my practice in Beverly Hills, primarily focus on learners with ADHD and the accompanying executive functioning, writing, math, reading comprehension challenges that go along with that diagnosis, obviously the comorbid diagnoses also. We specialize in that mainly because that's my jam and that's what I really enjoy doing. Other educational therapists will specialize in other things, which Steph can talk about, but Steph, who are some of the clients that you are getting referred? Yeah. So I have my therapist, my practice, and basically we see a lot of the same ADHD a lot. But also, I seem to have a lot of really impacted students with processing disorders, Mm -hmm. with traumatic brain injuries, with kids that have had chemo, things Mm. like that, that are... Autism spectrum disorder. A lot of autism. A lot of really, really impacted kids seem to be my jam. Yeah. Yeah. Where are your referrals coming from primarily? (laughs) <laughs> all over the place. People who, you know, you guys, those who test, mm-hmm. schools, 
people who find us online word of mouth from therapists Mm -hmm. when they realize, especially when it's outside of their, um, when things are happening mostly at school and things aren't Mm -hmm. happening as at home. And we deal a lot with the social emotional aspects of learning and in school. So that's another aspect of how it's different from tutoring because we're really talking about, there's a lot of self-esteem going on and we're really working on that because as Rachel said, a long time ago, and I've just adapted this because I love it so much, is by the time kids come to us, they've lost the love of learning. Some of the kids in my practice, that is the entire goal right now, is fostering the love of learning. I have to jump in and ask how you do that, because that is so important. So if you, in like 30 to 45 seconds, could just tell me how you build self-esteem and love of learning. No, I'm joking on the time, but it's, uh, I was just talking with a family yesterday with a little guy, you know, a little guy with ADHD and already very low academic self-esteem, a lot of self-criticism. I think that's a big question in a lot of our practices is how you really foster that or rekindle that love of learning and self-esteem. So this is a long-term relationship that we have with our clients. So Mm -hmm. educational therapy is more akin to a marathon than a sprint. And we make that very clear to parents that you may not see an impact of ed therapy for a while. There's a lot of ways in to get a student back. Mm -hmm. It is easier if we work with a child before puberty. And that's just a fact. So if we get a kid in elementary school who's already having these self-esteem issues, it's easier to win them back. So there's multiple avenues. So one is remediating information and showing them that they can understand it. Another is demystifying their learning profile, explaining to them what it is that's going on in their brain. We have a lot of conversations that are rather heartbreaking. I have students who have asked me, is the ADHD ever going to go away or is this forever? And you know, it's never going to go away, but I will because you're going to learn how to be successful without me. And so through that conversation, through the normalization of what it is that they're experiencing, and honestly, we normalize it for parents also. That has to be said, because when the parents are calling, they're talking about their kid who they feel like is a real outlier. But for us, Mm. I could tell you what you're going to tell me, because it's what we do all day, every day. So Steph, what would you, you do some amazing stuff through like gameplay also. I love games. So most of the kids, my office looks like Toys R Us. (laughs) There's over. A blessed memory. (laughs) Right? Right. There's, they're opening again, guys. Mm. There's over 200 games in my particular office. I have two offices and that's because I get bored of them. But. Literally, the kids come in and I can get them on board almost 99.9% of the time with a game. And that's how I start. You always say it's low investment, high return. There you go. In games. Do you have go-to games? What are your favorite Uh, games to get kids? What are the Uh, Oh, I have a lot of favorite games. But the game that I play with every single new client every single time is Rush Hour. And I don't know if you're familiar with that game. It's a great game. 
It's no. basically it a parking lot puzzle. You know those old school puzzles where you had to move the pieces, but they didn't come out and you had to like get them in a picture and they were like on a little square with like the nine pieces or whatever. It's kind uh-huh. of like that, but you have to move these cars and drive one of the cars off the parking lot. And I can get so much information just by watching how they attack that problem. It is a wonderful wonderful just checking how they do things it's my own testing that is Mm -hmm. not you know it's unofficial and and whatnot but I can learn so much about who they are I want to add that on our podcast which is is okay for me to say this oh yeah of course okay so on our podcast which is called learn smarter the educational therapy podcast we have done several episodes where Steph breaks down games and how to play them and explains why certain things work and how she adopts them and then um, a lot of them have freebies associated with it so you're if you're interested in going and getting like a particular list of games that she likes it's available on our website as well which is learnsmarterpodcast.com Oh, that's awesome. I love that you have done podcast episodes on games Mm -hmm. specifically. That's fantastic. It is my jam. I love it very much. And I love, we often talk a lot about how to level up a game. So the kids that walk in and want to play a game that they loved as a kid, you can adapt it for a kid that's gone through puberty already, that's a teenager, and make it something that's very specific to what they need, but yet they still get to be a little kid and play the game that they loved. So it's so fun. Yeah, yeah, I could really see it. Now you've got me thinking about games in my office. There you go. Oh, it's a game changer. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real, it's a game changer. The games are a game changer. They really (laughs) are. I promise. Games games actually also really work great with kids who are rigid. Yes. Well, because Mm. they'll learn the rules of the game and then you shift it. Yep. and, And they have to tolerate it. Yep. So you start to build that kind of resiliency as well through gameplay. I love that. And that might be a nice segue to really diving into some executive functioning stuff, speaking of rigidity and flexibility and Mm -hmm. whatnot. So y'all both, it sounds like, work a lot with executive functioning. And I know this is a big topic, but I'd love to try to dig into that a little bit and learn how you might work with some of the most common executive functioning concerns that we see. So the sustained attention, the rigidity, the poor planning and organization, you can take it wherever you'd like to. Yeah. Well, we both start in the same place with every single student that comes into our practices. Mm -hmm. And that is managing your time and your things. And first and foremost, we like to have them make a Google calendar if possible, or have a planner. And we always start there because that helps with a lot of the rigidity that usually is based upon anxiety and not understanding and not knowing what's going on. And the more that we can give them control over those things and be able to have systems in place that make sense to them and are easy, the more they're likely to keep it up. We talk a lot And when I say a lot, I mean, this is a major conversation that we're having on our podcast. Our second episode was titled How to Calendar, and we go into why we start there. But Mm -hmm. it's the analogy that I like to use with managing your time and managing your things is that parents are just concerned kind of with the destination. 
They mm-hmm. want their kid to know the assignment and they want the assignment turned in. Well, there's all this prep work that you have to do in order to meet that goal. And I always say you can't drive a car to a destination without knowing where you're going. And a lot of our students don't know what they've, it's very common for learners to come in, they're missing assignments, or they've done the assignment, but they never put it in the hands of the teacher, Mm -hmm. or they don't know where it is, but they know that they did it. And it's very common for kids to come in with a lot of anxiety. And we know from our experience that organizing their time, and yes, our preferred method is absolutely a digital calendar. It's not always possible, but managing their time and then helping them learn how to manage their things, which by the way, oftentimes it can be very complicated. Mm -hmm. They'll come in with these really, really, really hugely complicated systems And we scale everything back and we make everything so much more simpler for them because we don't Mm -hmm. want them to have to make decisions about stuff, about where things should go. So it reduces the anxiety. And that's a huge impact that happens right away Mm -hmm. through the educational therapy. And I will also say kind of the unintended consequence of us helping our learners organize their time is suddenly the family structure is forced to change because parents now have to be responsible for organizing their time when their kid is doing it. So we'll often say that learners in our practices will have the best executive functioning in their household and they will be teaching their siblings and their parents kind of how to do things, which we've seen time and time again. Oh yeah. We've had had sessions with parents who see what is going on with their kid and then they ask to come in as well Yeah, to have us help them organize so that they can also reduce that anxiety and stress. Yeah, because as we always say, the apple never falls far, right? So they want to learn too. I've had many sessions or kids that come in and they've taught their older siblings how to do it and they're so excited. And that's step number one in having a victory and having a success. How cool is that when you get to teach your older sibling how to have a calendar? Right. Yeah, that's a big moment when a Mm -hmm. younger sibling can do anything better than an older sibling. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially for our kids, it's one of the things that I ask when I'm speaking to parents calling is where are they in the birth order? Because if you have a kid who's second or third and they have older siblings who are very high functioning and it looks to be very easy for them to be successful, it's a huge win when they can do something quote unquote better than that sibling that they admire so much. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I'm thinking of our own kids and I know that would, that would be really helpful for our younger one. So you start with the calendar. Um, I know we could probably, we could spend the whole episode or two on calendars. You've done. Oh, it we, have. Me, but, oh, oh yeah. we have. Yes. So generally I'm very curious. You said that you simplify, you use Google calendar. Are there any kind of main principles that you try to teach kids when you're building that calendar for them for the first time? Everything in one. And this is something you'll hear hear us drill time and time again. It's the same thing for how they organize their things. There really should only be one option where something can be. And you should be able to produce whatever is asked of you on demand, even if you're not in that class. So meaning when they come here, sometimes our, our clients will come in with their own agenda, but it doesn't match up with our agenda. And we're asking for something they weren't expecting. They should be able to produce that for us. But Mm -hmm. when, when it comes to the calendar, it's not just the school calendar. And let's talk about like middle schoolers, for example, they're transitioning classes. 
they have sports they have sometimes religious activities, they have music, they have doctor's appointments if they're medicated or, you know, a human being. They have family birthdays that they're responsible to be at. There's family events that they need to go to. And all of that information, just like an adult, needs to be compiled in one location. It's why we don't like school portals because it teaches our learners learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. They don't think they need to create a system. We just did an episode on the four reasons students don't want a calendar. And reason I think number one was I have it in my portal. Well, yeah. no, you don't. The yeah. portal is a backup. The schools don't use it in a consistent way. No. So some teachers could be on Schoology. Some teachers could be on Google Classroom. Well, that's an EF nightmare. But if you have your own system for how you're doing things and you're using those as backups, you're going to be fine. Yeah. So all the things need to be in one place when it comes to your time. And that really matters when you're creating a study plan, because if you have sports on Wednesday from five to eight, we're not going to plan for you to study that day. It's not reasonable. Yeah. And we need to have all that information in front of us to get to the study plan. Yeah. And the same for bindery. We use one. Mm-hmm. Is one for everything. And we, you know, honestly, we show our clients our systems yeah, so they can see, they can see our calendar. I show mine all the time and they all see it. we love color coordinating things. I talk about things that I know that I need to pay attention to what colors and what colors mm-hmm. I don't. I'm very visual. So for me to be able to see an end product and then know what it needs to get to to look like is something that I often use with my clients because that's how I work. Kids come in with so many different ways that they're doing things. You know, they'll spend two hours highlighting different colors of things and it is such a waste of their time that it's really, you know, the biggest thing about executive functioning is teaching them what's important, what's not, right? So that's working memory, right? Planning, prioritizing, organizing, all of those things, but having them understand where to start, how to start, what is really being asked of them are all the things that we incorporate once we have the initial calendar and binder and everything set up in their backpacks. Sometimes we do backpack maps. Where does everything need to live? Things like that. Sometimes I've done it with their rooms, Mm -hmm. their desks. And the important thing to know about a calendar and when you're creating it, it's a lot of upfront work. You're inputting a lot of information, but when you have that conversation and you say, do you see how much you have going on? Look how long this is taking us to map out kind of your life. It also explains to them, oh, I really don't want to be holding on to all this information in my brain. I always tell students that your brain only has so much, this is a stephism too. (laughs) Your brain only has so much capacity to hold on to information. So let's hold on to the information that you're going to be tested on. Not where you have to be tomorrow. And one of my favorite things to say to a student is, ask me what I have to do tomorrow. And they'll go, Rachel, what do you have to do tomorrow? And I I have no idea, but I will be at everything (laughs) on time, prepared and ready to go because my calendar tells me to. And then their favorite thing is when I have a calendar and fail, which happens to all of us, right? We put something in on the wrong date and it's just human. They love hearing about that. Because it allows them to make mistakes too. That's for the rigid kids, for sure, too. Yes. And I wanted to add the analogy that I always use is most kids have an iPhone or a smartphone. And I say, what happens when you have all the apps running at the same time? And I'll get a couple of answers. Either one, it slows down, or two, the battery dies. 
right? And so that's my analogy. That's what your brain is doing while you're sitting there thinking about how you need to turn this in or how you need to get something for lunch or you need to go somewhere or remember to ask your mom, can you go over to your friend's house? Those are things that you shouldn't be holding on into in your brain because it's going to slow you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's David Allen from Getting Things Done who says that brains are meant to have ideas, not hold them. And Oh, I love oh, that. Oh, yeah. 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 Ooh, yeah it really stuck with me. That. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Take that one. But it makes so much sense, right? And these things that we can offload to technology there's no reason not to. Yep. And we can do that. Exactly. So I have a couple of logistical questions. The first one is why Google Calendar versus other calendars? Uh-huh. Is there a, re- uh-huh. is there a there's reason a for reason. that? Yeah, there's, there's a reason for everything we do, yeah. Jeremy. So just I ask. thought there might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always a method to the madness. Cool. Google Calendar. Okay, so there's a lot of reasons, and Rachel will probably come up with more than I can think of off the top of my head. But number one, you can automate things and have things be reoccurring. You can change colors. You can get it across any platform. Kids always have their phones with them. So you can access it there. Let's say you lose your phone or you don't know what you have to do. You can walk into any electronics store store and pull up your calendar if you need to. So it doesn't go anywhere. It's always available. So you're not going to lose it. It streamlines things And you can invite other people to things and you can share calendars across family members and have control over what your kids can see and what they can change and what they can't. So there's a lot of control that you can have on a Google Calendar. I'll add a couple more things. Yeah. Also saying we just did another episode called How to Calendar Like a Pro. The calendaring conversation gets a lot of traction in our Facebook group as well. So we decided to do another episode, but I wanted to reiterate, it does not matter if you have your iPhone, if you have your computer, and if you put everything into the Apple native app, let's say, then you need a Mac or an Apple computer to be able to access it. And so the other thing I'll add is that a lot of schools, so one of the things I didn't mention that you put into your calendar is this school year-wide calendar. When do you have days off? When do you have minimum days? When do you have breaks? Kids love putting breaks into their calendar, which by the way, I do too. And a lot of schools, at least where the schools that I'm working with have a Google calendar that you can import onto yours Mm -hmm. from their school website. So it can reduce some of that effort that needs to go in to us. The functionality is just better than something else. It's not always feasible. And it can get really complicated if students are on a, like a rotating A through G schedule, which I hate because you can't automate it, but there's workarounds for everything. And if it's possible to make it digital, we will, much to the chagrin of a lot of parents who don't understand why we go down that path, but we're working with a generation that they're native users. That totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't, it sounds like y'all have done a lot of content on calendaring. So mm-hmm. I'll make sure to link to all of that and not spend a ton of time on that here. I did want to ask though, like how early is too early to start a kid on calendaring? Never. Never. Okay. So I'm thinking through this. So I have an eight-year-old who does not have a phone and will not have a phone for right. who knows how long, but right. how do but you do can, that? You can have a paper planner. Lots of schools have paper planner. And here's something that you should just be aware of, especially as they transition into middle school and get older. They should know when they have 
sports and they should know when they have practice and they should know when they have a doctor's appointment or something that they're expected to do. Get the week at a glance calendar so they can see their whole week. And this is just a very specific thing for us. We teach elementary age kids to write their assignments on the day that they're due. This becomes a huge problem in middle school Mm -hmm. because things are not assigned one day and do the next. And the analogy we use for that is you go to the dentist twice a year. When do you put that appointment on your calendar? You put it on the day you have to go because there's no way you're going to remember, right? It's the same for assignments. But the earlier you can teach kids to write down what they need to accomplish, the easier you'll have it in the transition as they mature and Mm -hmm. evolve. I like that. Yeah, I'm thinking of so many things. This is very personally relevant. Yeah, Thank you so much for that. Yeah. yeah. Right. So where does it go from there? So you do the calendaring first, and then what comes after that? Depends on the kid. Yeah, it really does depend on the kid. The age of the kid, what's going on, where their struggle is. Sometimes it's literally a goal. Like I said, sometimes the goal is just loving learning again before we can even remediate anything because how many times have they had worksheets put in front of them and they just turn off. So there's that there's, it could be, you know, anything from reading or math or writing. Rigidity. Yeah. Rigidity. Starts showing signs of flexibility. Yeah. That's a big overarching goal as well. Yep. Self-advocacy. Their goal might be to ask us one thing in session they wouldn't normally ask for help for. Um, It really honestly depends. And that's why every student is very individualized. I hear you. Could I throw a couple of case examples at you? Totally do it. Just scenarios and just see where we go. Yeah. Well, so I won't get super specific, but a lot of the time I hear problems with getting homework done. The kid will not, can't sit down to get his homework done. So let's just say he's 10 in the fifth grade. It's across the board. It's not just a specific subject, but he has a lot of trouble sitting down to get his homework done. He'll protest. He'll move around. He'll go throw something away, get a drink, go to the bathroom. And they have a hard time. It takes 30 minutes to even sit down to do homework that would take five minutes to finish. Yeah. So that's the task initiation, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want to call these students procrastinators because of the negative connotation. And also we don't call students lazy ever Mm -mm. because we come from a fundamental belief that all students and learners want to please. So the real question is why? Yeah. Why? Well, let's get down to why there's usually one thing that is the trouble there. Is it writing? Is it something having to do with reading? Where are the feelings coming from that are delaying the task initiation? We believe the emotional impacts the ability. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's a five-minute assignment. Yep. And if you're looking at like the larger lifespan of your child, you don't really care about that homework assignment, but you do care that they're able to start and complete non-preferred tasks. Yeah. So it's that is a very common one. I will tell you, I think it's more common for it to be in one content area. Yeah. Our kids absolutely have preferred content areas. I have a high schooler who will avoid history and English by doing her math homework. Yeah. yeah. So we work on that. Go ahead, Steph. I was going to say, and our goals aren't going to be today they won't sit down and do any homework, and tomorrow they have everything done, they've done it and turned it in. So the goals are baby steps. So it might be let's decide how long of a break you're going to get after school 
And let's sit down and do one or two things, one or two problems even. And that is a win for right now. And we have to help coach parents through that. And what I'll also say is we have the blessing of not being the parent. There's so much going on between the parent and their child, especially if the parent identifies with what the kid is going through. Mm -hmm. Um, We hear a lot from families that where we're at therapists when they were in school because the kind of support that we're offering to their kids, they wish they had had. Yeah. But we have the blessing of like, I can sleep at night. I'm attached to your kid, but I didn't create them. So outsourcing that part of the relationship can be really, really helpful if possible. Yeah. And we work a lot with the schools and the teachers creating goals and expectations. And so if the expectation is literally, we can get the teachers on board. The expectation is literally to do one thing and that's enough. Great. And we'll build up the muscle. You have to start somewhere. You don't get a six pack by going to the gym once. Right. And that's, that's an important part of what we do is that we do partner with the school. So another example of how we kind of help accommodate a learner, for example, is when they get that full sheet of math, Mm -hmm. they don't need to do it. You don't need them to do all 30 problems. The demand is too high for this particular kid. Mm -hmm. What you need them to do is understand the concept. Well, if they do every other problem and they're still demonstrating understanding of the concept. That should be enough. That should be enough. Yeah. I totally agree. It's nice to hear that validated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear y'all say that you really dig into the emotional component because I'm a big fan of that idea that the emotional pieces get in the way just as much, if not more than the cognitive pieces. Absolutely. Yes. So how about kids that maybe just have a hard time sitting? Yeah. They're fidgety in class. They're talking to friends. They're not paying attention. You know, they're just zoned out. I hear that a lot. Like I wasn't paying attention. I lost track and all of a sudden class was over and we're leaving and I just forgot to write my homework down and that kind of thing. We do a couple of things. One is using the Pomodoro technique, which is getting students and learners to really know how long they can actually focus on a preferred task and a non-preferred task. And one of the great things that we both do is we both use baking timers. One of the things also is, especially with executive functioning, is knowing how long things take you. So we teach that as well, because you need to know how long it's going to take you to get ready in the morning, how long it takes you to drive to school or work or whatever. So helping them understand how long this is actually going to take them. And sometimes it's just about, they think it's going to take them 40 minutes and it takes them five. So really teaching them what that actually looks like. And then let's focus on how long we can actually focus for. And that might be the entirety of the assignment is just focusing for that amount of time. I wanted to add a couple of ideas for the in-school part of this. Obviously we work with teachers, preferred seating and all of that, but we can do a couple of things. First, you want the kid to be able to identify that they missed something. So if they can self-regulate enough to know that they missed something and then have that conversation with the teacher, usually a teacher sees it happening and appreciates that the student is coming to them and that they don't have to go to the student. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that can be incredibly helpful, and it's not always feasible if a learner is behind, but if we're in a position with our clients in the non-preferred 
I do a lot of math. So let's say math is the non-preferred activity. And that's when they really act out. Math is at the end of the day in their classroom and they're just done. And also they don't like it. If I'm able to prime them and pre-teach the material, well, they're on board in class because they already know it. So much easier. And they're excited that they already know it. And they like to share the Rachel strategy. This is how Rachel taught me to do it. And they're more open to hearing the strategy of how the teacher wants it done as well. So if you can prime a learner in advance for the classes, this works really well as well for kids who don't love reading. We encourage all the kids who don't love reading to kind of get the books done rather quickly and get that non-preferred task over with. And we can talk all day about how we do that because there's a lot of reading strategy stuff that we do as well. Those are two specific things that require partnership with the classroom teacher for sure. Right, right. Could we dive into the maybe the subject-specific stuff just for a bit here mm-hmm. before we sure. run out of time? Sure. I do hear a lot of, I just don't know what to write, or yes. they just won't sit down to read for 20 minutes like the teacher wants them to. Um, maybe about- we could t- I call the writing. Yeah. Right. How about this is one that I'm sure you hear all the time. They can say so much mm-hmm. on the topic, but when they sit down to write, it's three sentences. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Okay, Steph, go ahead. So one of the biggest things is using technology, mm-hmm. right? If they can sit there and talk about and answer the question orally to you, then they should be able to either speech to text or type it if that is easier, or sometimes with my learners, I literally have them say it to me and I type exactly what they're saying word for word and start there. We always sit there and say, pick one thing and start there because you're not going to be able to change something overnight. And for the kids that don't want to write, it's also the blank page anxiety, right? So when we sit there and tell kids to do a brain dump, What are all the things that you can think about about this topic? Or a running dialogue. You can sit there and write the things that you're thinking about at this assignment. And I'm going to say you need to just journal for a couple of minutes. And you can say the entire time, I hate that Stephanie is making me do this. Mm -hmm. But something will come out eventually. Or even telling them it doesn't matter where you start or what you say because that's not going to be the end product anyway. Writing is the ultimate executive functioning challenge. We tell people and we tell learners, you need to attend to the prompt. You need to hold on to the information that you're being asked about. You need to hold on to the mechanics of writing. You need to hold on to the grammar that you need to do. Spelling should be accurate. And oh, by the way, do that all simultaneously. Yeah, and organize your thoughts. And in order. Yeah. In order. Go ahead and start with the thesis. Yeah. How do you Uh, know the thesis? That's a real pet peeve of ours. How do you know the thesis before you've written anything? You don't know how you feel about something yet. And we give our learners permission. The intro and conclusion of something really should be done last when you know what you said. So we've done a lot of episodes about writing and strategies that we use for writing on the podcast as well, because it is such a huge area of need. And it's also highly individualized to what's going on with the particular learner. Cause obviously it's going to be different if it's an intentional issue or if they didn't understand the material to begin with and they have, they struggle with reading comprehension, but they can decode beautifully, but they struggle with understanding what has been read. Well, you're going to have a hard time writing about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or they don't understand the prompt. 
oftentimes, especially the high school students, they'll get a prompt. There's not a single question in the prompt. It's very difficult to answer something without a question. Mm-hmm. So we teach them how to turn that prompt into a question that is answerable. I love that. Yeah. I find that a lot of the kids I work with who are more rigid and concrete really struggle with writing because yes. if it's an open-ended prompt or even an open-ended question, it's like, how do I narrow that down? And how do I answer that? And what do they actually want? So, And it's hard because there isn't a correct answer necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for those concrete thinkers. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can go wherever you want, but what's the answer? Well, there isn't one. Right. Right. So that's why, so especially true. when we can get them younger and we can start practicing that, it really benefits them when they get older and they're able to use those skills when they get the prompts that don't have a correct answer or one single answer anyway. That makes sense. Yes. So I know that we've done kind of a whirlwind tour of ed therapy and executive functioning intervention. Is there any sort of hot topic that y'all definitely want to throw out there in terms of like tricks, tools for executive functioning that you just got to mention because they're so good. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because as Steph and I have done this podcast project together, there's been different ebbs and flows of it and different things that we're talking about at different moments. So I don't know if there's an EF thing that we're really talking about loving right now, but Steph and I have been spending a lot of time thinking and talking about rigidity and learners mm-hmm. and how to help move them at least to that first victory. And so one of the things that we talk about, and this is true of any goal, we have to kind of give this visual to parents because going back to the earlier example of we want them to do their homework and turn it in. Well, you're at the bottom of the staircase and you're talking about the landing. And I'm just talking about getting on that first step. And getting on that first step with rigid learners can take a long time. Mm -hmm. But it's the same with going to the next step isn't going to take as long. It's like, Jeremy, when you started the podcast, I don't know how long it took you to launch. But when we started our podcast, we prepped the first episode for nine months because we had no podcasting experience. So it took us nine months to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And now we produce like, two episodes a week sometimes, and it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. So it's the same, but that's, that's the whole point, is that getting to that first podcast release was so hard. And now we don't think anything of it when we post an episode. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. That's such a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. And suffice it to say, it was months on yeah. my side as well. Months and months. It's- and it really makes me think of how we take a lot of skills for granted as adults, yes. Well, even for neurotypical kids, that it takes time to learn skills when you're doing something for the first time. But when you find a kid who is not neurotypical in whatever way or ways, then it's an added layer that makes it even more complex for teaching Mm -hmm. new skills. And that takes a long time. I mean, it took me months before I felt comfortable with my podcast, you know, and oh, the yeah. flow. And let's be honest, is, you weren't a hundred percent comfortable with that first episode, but you said you're going to do it anyway, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had to just push it out. Yeah. At a certain point. Yeah. Sure, Once you figure sure. out the tech of how to actually push it out. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask a couple things. When you say rigidity and learning, can you just give a couple examples so listeners might know, you know, in their practices, what that looks like? 
I'm just curious what you see with that. Let me give you an example of a current client. I'm sure Seth knows who I'm mm-hmm. going to talk about. Mm-hmm. His entire reason for being here is because he's so rigid about his studied strategies. Well, they're not working. So how many times do you want to continue doing the same thing while it's not working? Let me give like a little background on the profile. He's twice exceptional. So he's ADHD and he's highly gifted. When you have a highly gifted learner, they will encounter struggle once the material levels up because they've never had to study before. When they've entirely relied on their memory, and now you're not really asked about remembering facts, dates, and topics. You're asked about interpretation. They have no mechanism for how to study. So this particular student of mine has been here with me for about a year. And if he takes 10% of what I suggest, that's a win, which drives his parents crazy because it's, it's costly to do this, but it's about those small wins. And so we'll talk about, for example, okay, this is how you're going to approach this particular thing. And this is what I want to see the next time you come back. Like, I want you to show me physically. And he'll come back and he'll have amended it. And it's basically, he reverses back to what his comfort zone is. That's one example. Yeah. And I was going to add that it looks like the kids that say, well, that's not how my teacher does it. Yeah. Those are the kids that are afraid to waste paper. Yeah. For instance, because they think that they have to get all their math problems in one side of the paper and that's it. And it looks like you can't even tell what's happening. Oh, Jeremy, it's, I could show you pictures of this, but yeah, I'm sure uh, you've seen it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the kids that when we play a game and I try to level it up, they're the ones going, but those aren't the rules. Mm-hmm. Right. The kids that feel like a story when you ask them a prediction or to change the ending or something, they are very distraught about something or don't have the flexibility between tasks. They can't go back and forth between things. There's so many ways it shows up depending on the age and the profile. So teaching flexibility is, as you guys know, very, very important, but you can teach it without them even realizing sometimes what's going on. And then sort of once you hit that, we talk about, look what used to be really hard and look where you are now. Yeah. I want to add two more thoughts. The first is when we have a learner who's rigid, we work a lot with the parents because sometimes they're not rewarding moments of small flexibility because they want to see moments of huge flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so we talk to them about, you got to honor this little thing that happened is actually a really big deal. The second thing I want to add is how important the rapport is between the learner and us. Mm -hmm. They are coming in here They're very vulnerable. They're very exposed. We have to get vulnerable with them and be in that place with them so that it's safe for them. And it can take a while. But that's why when you are going out and looking for an educational therapist, you want to hire someone who you think will connect with your kid. Of course. Um, I love that. So as we start to close here, I would love to get your thoughts. This is coming out of left field a little bit, so you can think about it if you need to. From our side, I'm sure you've interacted with a lot of psychologists. You've seen a lot of evaluation reports. Mm -hmm. Anything from y'all's side that would be helpful for us to know um, in terms of, you know, reports, results, recommendations, you know, things that we can do 
to make the transition smoother? This is a question that I ask any of my guests that might be on the other side of the report, because this is an ongoing discussion for us, you know, how to make things more accessible. And I'm curious if y'all have seen anything that we might add to that. I can speak to how I use the report. I read the beginning part and I read the recommendations and conclusion first, which by the way was how I read stuff in college too. Like when you got those long research and they went through the methods and everything. Okay. Tell me where we're going so I can see you build the story of it. I think it's really helpful. And this is just a pet peeve. A lot of the people who I find do assessments are very clinical And when giving the feedback to parents and when giving the feedback to the learner, understanding that parents have no experience with these tests, a lot of the words that we use and that we've used on this podcast are jargon. Mm -hmm. They don't know what we're talking about when we say task initiation necessarily. So explaining terms, giving parents processing time, and inevitably parents have more questions about it once they've had time to process it as well. So kind of going into that feedback, knowing that they know literally nothing about what you're about to talk to them about and treat them that way, I think is super helpful. I've got a couple of things to add. The first one is parents tend to do whatever they see first on the list. Yes. And when you put educational therapy last, I think that's detrimental. For a lot of kids, not every kid, because that's not going to be the correct referral. But for a lot of kids, that should be the place that they should start. Especially if the parent has expressed to you that they're reluctant to do medication. Yep. Give the referral, give the recommendation, but know that, put that as number two. So at least they have an act, because we get that a lot. Well, will you work with my kid if they're not medicated? The answer is yes. But once we get to a certain point, we're going to come and tell you very likely you should do this now. So knowing your audience a little bit and kind of tailoring it for that particular family, what they're likely to do. Yeah. It's got to be frustrating for you guys. You do these amazing reports. Sometimes parents do nothing with it. Or I get a report that was done years ago and they just said anything. Yeah. And that said what was, yes. Yeah. So, so there's that. I think the other thing is, If you guys have parents that are very anxious about their children and start going down the rabbit hole of, well, is my kid going to be able to graduate? Is my kid going to go to college? Is my kid going to, you know. They're in fourth grade. Yeah, and they're in fourth grade. Is really teaching them that, you know, talking to them about the long-term play of how their kids can get there, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. So. I think, you know, your reports are very clinical, but I think sort of putting something in there that helps them know that this diagnosis or these things are not going to be, you know, they're mourning the loss of what they thought their child was like. So I think them getting support themselves for that, I think is really important. And I don't think that like there have been people in my practice where I've said, if you would like to continue, I would like you to go see somebody to help you with your anxiety and things going on around your child too. So we um, don't like it when the learner becomes the identified problem in the family. Yeah. Of course and not. Steph and I have both said this. There's been a family that I wouldn't start working with until the parents had been in therapy together and I knew them for a long time prior. And I had spoken to the therapist 
because we can't make it all about, especially when there's tremendous conflict, it's not one-sided. So we can work with the learner, but they need to be making changes as well sometimes. That's such a good point. Yeah. And that's just another layer to the work that all of us do when we work with kids is that yeah. it's not just the kids. It's the family. Never. It's never just the kid. And it's always interesting. Isn't it interesting when the parent either knows that they're very similar or has no idea? Yeah. Like one or the other. Right. Right. And sometimes if I'm feeling comfortable and confident on the intake call with the family, I say, who does the kid take after? It's always interesting when it's the parent who blames the other parent. This is totally my husband. You know, I get that a lot. Right. And so what does your husband do now? Well, you know, he's doing this and this and this, and we're a highly successful family. And I'm like, oh, see? Sure. Everything turned out fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Our time has flown, and I feel like we jam-packed it with all sorts of good information. I would love to have you talk about how people can get in touch with you. You've mentioned your podcast, which I'll definitely link to in the show notes. Um, That sounds like a fantastic resource, but if people want to reach out and I don't know, do you work across state lines? Can you do Skype? Yeah, we do. Okay. Okay. That's fantastic. So yeah. How should people get in touch with you if they want to do that? So if you're interested in working with us, it's kind of the same process for Steph and me. You're going to go to our website. So my website is www.capedtherapy.com, K-A-P-P, edtherapy.com. Steph's is myedtherapist.com. And on both of our websites, there is a link to sign up for a phone call with us, and we'll direct you in the right direction at that point. Yeah. And the other thing you can do is you can find both of our practices from the podcast website, which is learnsmarterpodcast.com. Or you can email us from the podcast, which is Rachel and Steph at learnsmarterpodcast.com. And we see all the things. Yeah. (laughs) DM us on Instagram. We see that also. (laughs) Yeah. All the things. Fantastic. Well, I'll have all that stuff in the show notes. I'm imagining at least some person or two will reach out to you because it's been... Yeah. And we love to talk to professionals too. So if anybody wants to have a virtual zoom coffee or anything like that, we love, we love love to do that because the more that we all teach each other, the better. I do want to also just add, go to our Instagrams because I'm posting less on it now, but we both have posts on there of what educational therapy and practice looks like, Mm -hmm. but we're showing the strategy, explaining why you see the visual component of it. So if you're visual that's a nice resource for you also. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you both. This has been great. Thank Um, you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you next time I'm in California. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Love it. Hey y'all. Thanks again for tuning into my episode with Rachel Cap and Steph Pitts. Um, They shared a ton of great information. I hope you learned a lot. And like I said, check out their podcast. They really we're quite humble in describing their podcast, but if you look through the episode list, they've done series on executive functioning, on reading, writing, math. They have a ton of good info in this podcast. Again, that's the Learn Smarter podcast. If you have not subscribed to this podcast yet, I would love to have that honor 
of a subscription to the podcast. So that just makes sure that you get the episodes downloaded right when they come out and you don't miss any future episodes. It's pretty easy to subscribe. Just do that in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you are listening to this and make sure you don't miss any future episodes. There are some good ones coming up, so stay tuned and take care in the meantime. Bye-bye.